Hello and welcome to the Vorthos cast. I'm Chris Delano. And I'm Carrie Thomas. And we're getting to that sweet 2.6%. And then we're just going to turn magic into... Well, we're going to turn Hasbro into wizards and then wizards into only magic story publishing. And that's our leadership goal. As long as you want to chip in, I think we'll need about $360 million. But... Um, I'll be on the board of directors. Chris will be. Lorelai will be. Uh, Brian will be on there. Jay, I don't know about. Jay, I feel like that's a conflict of interest. You know, we're gonna keep Jay as a uh, as an independent contractor. I think. <laughs> <laughs> we we promote everybody in the in in our hedge fund except for Jay. So, if you want to help uh, the Vorthos cast take over. Uh, Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast, you can start by just Venmoing us uh, at the Vorthos cast. Uh, we're looking for an average donation of about mm, 1.2 million per donation. So if you could just uh, hit up the Vorthos cast uh, Venmo, uh, 1.2 mil would be a good start, I think. If you want to do more, of course, we'll, we'll appreciate it. Yeah, I just figured like the NFT people are getting into it. Now this hedge fund's getting into it. We can We can get into like, it's our time. It's our time to shine. Look, if everyone else is allowed to scam people, we are too. Yes, yes. That is the moral of magic and capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I have to say that this is entirely a joke. There is no Venmo account for the Vorthos cast. Uh, and we have no interest in owning anything Hasbro related. I don't even want to own magic cards. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, I don't own any of them. I just rent them. I can't. I can't say the same. I have all of the um, 2015-era Planeswalker figurines sitting up on my shelf right now. Incredible. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> as tempted as I have been to get them for a $3 steal at Barnes & Noble for the past five years, uh, have not actually gotten one aside from Jace, which was gifted to me twice. So, yeah. So, you have, you have two Jaces? I, I did end up getting rid of one Jace. <laughs> did you did you get rid of Jace or did you get rid of Callus Roca? I got That's rid the of question. I got rid of Callus, I'm sorry. Callus is uncarded. Um irrelevant character. Probably will never get a card, even if there were more magic sets, which we're not sure of. I don't think they're printing any more cards. Just in uh, the future. No. All future sets will be released as NFTs. Uh, that was announced uh, actually. Just kidding. There were the, no NFTs at Wizards of the Coast yet. Uh, hopefully, yes. never. I feel like I feel like if anyone <laughs> if anyone is at least aware of like community backlash for poor decision making, Wizards has enough experience with that. They probably see this as like an actual thing they shouldn't do. Uh, but we'll see. Who knows? Hopefully, uh, we we do have some news for this week. Uh, Kamigawa Neon Dynasty is out. You can buy it at your local game store. You can buy it at probably like Target and Walmart now. By the time you're listening to this episode, it is fully released. Uh, you can go pick up the commander decks, all that stuff. Uh, so go out, enjoy it. Uh, also, uh, as of the day of recording slash last week, there was a another weekly MTG creative roundtable. Uh, with Blake, of course, leading it with uh, Emily Tang and James Mendez Hodes. Uh, you probably remember them from the first Creative Roundtable that came out before the set was released, where they couldn't really talk about any details. Uh, this one, they get to talk details about specific cards, specific story points. It's pretty good. Uh, you should go check it out. It's probably on YouTube by now. I'm assuming. Yeah, we're working in the past. Uh, very good. Very good discussion. Uh, also, they announced a bunch of secret layers. Uh, if you like secret layers, there's a bunch of really cool ones. The Street Fighter one was revealed. We got one that's like some some really interesting takes on creatures. Uh, just very fun stuff. Uh, the coolest one to me is a Kaido secret layer. It's just a bunch of cards that you know depict Kaito in the art. It's cool. I like that we're getting that. You know, a secret layer for a specific character, I think, is like what I would like out of secret layers if we're not going to do, you know, spell books. Yeah, that's what uh, I was like they were doing. Just if you guys want to abandon spell books, that's entirely fine. Just give us 
give us dedicated secret layers every so often, and I'll be, I'll be happy. I did like the idea. I'm hoping that this one has like a lower price tag. Not that the individual secret layers tend to be pretty cheap in non-foil for what you're getting, at least a lot of the times. You know, if you're really interested in what that secret layer has to offer, then like 30 bucks for a non-foil copy of the secret layer is relatively okay for the uh, the product that you're getting. I hope that this one might be a little bit cheaper because the spell books were like 15 bucks or something and they were excellent. Uh, this one feels a lot like a spell book except with more alternate art and uh, maybe... Maybe it's worth it. Uh, We'll see. But it's really cool. Um, But that's basically all the news we have. I'm sure tomorrow they'll release something. Uh, Last Friday, they released the article about all the legends of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty right after we recorded our episode about all of the legends of Kamigawa Neon Dynasty. So definitely go check that out. It's uh, got everything that we said we didn't know enough about. It explains it. So that's how that always works. Uh, This week, though, uh, Carrie and I are going to be going over the three side stories that we haven't talked about yet for Neon Dynasty. So if you remember a couple weeks back, we talked about the Kaito origin stories, which were sort of like their own two part uh, side story about, you know, Kaito. And this week we're covering the other three stories that we got over the course of the uh, spoiler season. So, uh. Yeah, we're going to talk about those. Two of them focus on the commanders, and one of them focuses on a really interesting pair of legendary creatures that we got in the set. So if we have uh, nothing else to discuss in terms of news and upcoming events and things of that sort, uh, we can just jump right in with uh, the first side story we're going to talk about, which is The Blade Reflected and Reborn by Emma Michael Candon. Yeah, so the story starts off with a Snake Samurai, Jashiro, which I can only assume is one of the commanders. You mean um, a, a Snamurai? A Snamurai. <laughs> I am happy that they didn't give in to um, Naga versus Snake, snake Distinguishment. Um, I think that was more for synergy with past sets, but at the same time. He is a Snake Samurai, and he is just sitting atop a rooftop and watching and judging locals who are worshipping a kami that is located at a shrine at the end of their main street in Far Corner. Um, The elders of Far Corner had hired him to protect their town, and a local named Aari had become his right hand in all of the protection efforts. Um, It turns out that a reckoner had died in town, but nobody would admit to Chishiro exactly how the reckoner had died, and he suspected that Aari had murdered the Reckoner, but didn't know for sure. And um, after Aari has shuff- shuttled all the people away from the Kami Shrine, Jishiro does go up to the Kami and tell tell it to make. Jishiro does go up to the Kami and tell it to not trouble the townsfolk more than it already has. Um, and then we get a flashback to Jishiro who was a member of the Order of Jukai, or Jukai Order, um, hunting down futurists in the forest while bonded to a kami named Kaima. Uh, the Mukatai Reckoners who scout... Back to the future. The Mukatai Reckoners whose scout had been killed had cut off the hand of Genzo, who was a son of Far, Cor- Far Corner, who had studied at the Imperial Academy, um, and... He was left half dead in the middle of the town, but recovered and ended up getting a prosthetic hand. Genzo passes along the Mukatai Reckoner's message, telling them, telling the people of Far Corner that the Reckoners are coming and that they either have to flee or they will be killed. Um, Chishiro works alongside the townsfolk to help prepare to essentially disable all of the Reckoners' technology and be able to kill them upon their arrival. But again, he is training townsfolk (laughs) in Far Corner, so uh, not much hope for that. The Mukatai Reckoner forces arrive, and there is a man named Tatsunari at the front who is riding a giant toad into town. Um, Hey, I know him. He's in the set. 
He is in the set. <laughs> I didn't know he was in the set, but then I saw he had art, so he is in the set. <laughs> uh, and Chishiro immediately recognizes him, dives down from a rooftop, revealing his position, starts killing these Reckoners, and eventually gets to face Tatsunari directly. And then we get yet another flashback to uh, Chishiro's Jukai Order days. It turns out that Tatsunari, quite a few years ago, had come to the Order's headquarters and under the friendly guise, but ended up poisoning the entire Order, intending to kill them in their sleep. Um, Tatsunari knew that the Kami Kaima had been bonded to Chishiro. Uh, Chishiro is not dead. He is just laying on the floor, pretty much paralyzed. And Tatsunari gives Kaima an ultimatum of either he will kill Chishiro or Kaima has to bond with him. Um, Just as Tatsunari is about to kill Chishiro, um, Kaima shatters the blade and both he and Tatsunari vanish. Uh, Chishiro is unbonded from the Kami and is left empty. Back to the future, the Disruptor plan only kinda works. Um, They are able to detonate a few of them and start bringing down the technology, but it is not across the board. Uh, They begin to assault the Mukatai, but it's not as one-sided as they had initially hoped. Chishiro is able to save Aari and Genzo by hopping on top of a mech and tossing a what is essentially a grenade um, into the cockpit and then jumping away, which is pretty sick. Uh, Chishiro then gets to actually face Tatsunari one-on-one and accuses him of hating the Kami because he is an empty person. Um, Tatsunari apparently just hates Kami, um, because he's an empty person, and end up coming to Far Corner specifically to kill the Kami that lived in the shrine. Um, they begin to fight, and Chishiro does get stabbed in the gut, but the Kami of the shrine is quick to save him, and starts wrapping magical vines and roots around his gut to stem the bleeding, and re-energize him, and Chishiro is able to continue to fight back Tatsunari, slices his toad in half, and essentially has him cornered on the ground, ready to kill him. The Kami is taunting Chishiro this entire time, trying to get him to actually slay Tatsunari. But uh, Chishiro looks up and examines the Kami a little closer and realizes, hey, that is Kaima, the Kami that I had been previously bonded with who had abandoned me. And... um. That gives Tatsunari and the Reckoners a moment to flee the scene and leave whatever happened between Jishiro and Kaima to happen. Uh, Jishiro orders Aari and Genzo to take the remaining uh, village people of Far Corner and take them to Tuashi, but they have their one-on-one comfort. They have their one-on-one confrontation between Chishiro and Kaima. Uh, An anger-filled reunion. It turns out they are both scorned, but only because they had poisoned their bond and each other with the hatred that Chishiro felt after being abandoned. Uh, Chishiro offers to try to correct it, and when it becomes clear that he can't really correct it, he does try to offer the Kami piece, but all that Kaima really wants is to be part of Chishiro again. And so Chishiro raises his sword and rebonds with the Kami. And that is the end. Quite a long story. Uh, I like it because it gives a... Not that the Kami conflict on Kamigawa was especially uh, underdeveloped. It was probably more developed in the original block than it was here. But knowing that people are jealous over being essentially Kami-blessed and not being able to have a Kami bonded to them is interesting. And uh, yeah, I like Chishiro. He's just a jaded samurai who uh, essentially took a wrong path. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I think uh, this story is very long. It feels very epic in its own way. Despite being like a short story, it feels like there's a lot to it. Um, I think that it is a, it's a really good one. I was happy when it came out. I, um, I read like little, I, I normally save all the story reading for the day of that we record the episode, but I had to like read a little bit into this one just because it was like the first side story that came out aside from, uh, the kind of origin stories. And I was like, Oh, this is neat. We're getting a story about Kamigawa. That's not like, it's not modern, but it's not ancient. You know, it's it's focusing on the old traditional side of the of the story without being, uh, you know, set in the past. Um, one thing that they talked about a lot with Neon Dynasty was that they kind of changed the the color wheel a bit to understand the tradition uh, tradition versus uh, modernity argument. Uh, and in that, you know, changed up color wheel, it's like blue, white, black, red, green where blue white is on the far side of the like technology and modern mech sort of Kamigawa and red green is on the other side, very traditional, very set in the old ways um, with black in the middle as being like, you know, eh, we'll do either. Uh, so I thought that was uh, the, the fact that they separated out the commander decks and then also the side stories to be, the red green story, which is about bonding with Kami and sort of like a traditional way of living. And the main character was a former member of the order of Jukai versus the white blue story, which we're going to talk about here in a minute, which is very much about mechs and technology and the future, um, which is, you know, the present on Kamigawa now. Um, and then we, uh, we didn't really get a, a story about like a mono black character, we got, I guess, Kaito in the main story, but um, at least two of our side stories really embodied that uh, that difference between tradition and modernity. Yeah, and I thought that was, it was a very nice, um, as somebody who had read the original Kamigawa block, well, three sets in the block, the vignettes that had been published alongside them, it felt like a good, fulfilling expansion on those Um not in exactly form, but in something that is like a worthwhile side story to tell and just satisfying to read. So I was happy about that. I'm happy to see like we had a very strange delineation of side stories this block because we had the saga stories, the main story, Kaido's origin, and then these three um, all kind of chopped into one another as far as uh, releases go. But yeah, I'm just happy we got like fulfilling side story out of it. <laughs> yeah. And we can, we can talk more about the rollout of the side stories at the end. Cause I do think there's something to talk about there. Cause this one, this set has been different from the new normal that we got used to yes. in some ways. Um, but before we get too much into that, let's go ahead and talk about the, uh, the second side story that I mentioned, uh, just a second ago, which is about like, you know, the futurists. Um, so this is a, a story about the, the commanders of the white blue commander deck. Uh, this story is called the Epoch Epoch engine, Epic engine. Um, <laughs> I always say E P O C H is Epic, but I know that that can be confusing when you're just listening to us and not reading. Uh, but it is the, the Epic engine by Grace Chan. And so this story starts with, uh, Katsumasa, who we met briefly in the main story, uh, remember, he was the one who gave the drone to Kaito. Uh, and Katsumasa is a moonfolk, and he's like a big futurist guy. And he is inviting this uh, young pilot named Kotori, who is like a protege of his, to be part of a very secret mech development project with her. Um, so Katsumasa has invited her to be part of the pilot of what he is calling the Epic Engine. Uh, this is being kept under a lot of wraps and very secretive. And uh, Katori is kind of used to that with Katsumasa, who is well known for this. Uh, so Katori is sort of brought to this mech and it's this huge, beautiful, very futuristic looking mech. And when Katori gets inside of it and she starts piloting, uh, she's used to like feeling very synchronized with the mechs and like that sort of neural connection that can happen. 
But here it's like a total synchronization. She feels as if she is like fully one with the mech. And so while she's like, you know, starting her drifting with this, uh, this Jaeger, um, while she's like plugging herself into the, the Ava or whatever you want to call it, uh, she starts feeling things that don't feel like her emotions. And she feels like another presence there. And she hears a name, Shorakai. And then she like shuts it all down because this is, you know, scary. Um, so we find out that like she continues working with Katsumasa and she continues training with this mech that she is now calling Shorakai, but Katsumasa is still calling the Epic Engine. Um, and then uh, we also find out that like she's been being watched by people. So there are these uh, these people called Veil Shapers, which we don't get really anything of. I didn't see anything about them in like the main story or any other story. Uh, and these Veil Shapers are like the futurists, surveillance spies and assassins. Uh, and she's noticing that they have been following her and tracking her. Uh, it could be that other futurists are like trying to figure out what Katsumasa is up to, but she also recognizes that it could be Katsumasa who is, you know, keeping her under his thumb. Uh, but she goes and has breakfast. And while she's eating breakfast, uh, an old friend of hers named Arima shows up and Arima is a non moonfolk futurist. Uh, she's described as having, uh, like a darker complexion and dark hair and brown eyes. And uh, she is basically starts out the conversation with her talking about how like, oh yeah, no, I mean, people have been sending me death threats my whole life. Like, you know, I've been promoted and I'm like a big part of the futurists now and people don't like it when outsiders are doing well in the futurists. So we learn that the futurists are, you know, racist. Um, so uh, yeah, that's, expected so um (laughs) i'm sorry if you've ever you know encountered tech people uh they'll say they're not but anyways um so uh arima is like hey uh what is causing you to be so like furtive i can tell something's up and katori says i'm part of this project with katsumasa and it's incredible and it's so interesting but i can't tell you anything And Arima is, like, clearly concerned. She does not like Katsumasa. And she tells her, hey, uh, Katsumasa is up to some weird stuff. Oh, Arima is they them, but yeah. Oh, sorry. No, you're fine. Yeah, Arima tells tells Katori, like, hey, uh, Katsumasa is up to some some stuff. You need to to be careful with it. Uh, And Katori's like, yeah, well, you know, it's really incredible. We're we're doing great work. and also, Katori is, she's starting to feel a connection. So uh, the next scene we get is just sort of like Katori talking about training with Shorakai. And she notices that they they have this like incredible connection. The synapses are just like so quick to fire. Everything is just perfect. And even Shorakai, Shorakai is exhibiting some weird powers of, of its own. It's like bending reality at times. Like, uh, Katori is saying, you know, like, oh, they, she thought that they were going to like slam into a wall, but the wall bent out of the way or the ceiling got taller, um, which is weird for a mech, but she's like, you know, Katsumasa is a brilliant. So who knows? Uh, and then she like starts really going deep into this connection with this mech and she sees like visions of her own past and like memories. And then she sees a vision of herself killing Katsumasa. And that's when she like you know presses the stop button and like gets out of there because that's weird. Uh, well, fast forward a little bit, and it turns out that Katsumasa is determined that Katori and Shorakai are ready for combat. So uh, Katori has sort of been referring to when she's in the cockpit uh, her connection with Shorakai as being Katori and Shorakai, like one word with hyphens. They are one thing. Um, I think in the story, it's even Katori hyphen Shorakai at times. Uh, so she's feeling a super deep connection to this mech. And they're dispatched to deal with some Reckoners, or at least that's what Katori has been told. But when they get to this building, which is under Bos- uh, Boseju, which she thinks is weird, because like Reckoners don't, Reckoners like stick to the underground. There wouldn't be above ground, especially in this area. Uh, they get there, and it turns out that these are actually people from the order of Jukai. 
So uh, Katori is a little confused and she starts trying to get, you know, she sends messages to. She phones home. Yeah, she phones home. <laughs> she, she gives a call to Katsumasa and is like, hey, uh, these are not Reckoners. They're Order of Jukai. What am I supposed to do? And the Order of Jukai start attacking her and they start attacking the Veil Shapers that came with them uh, with like, you know, EMP grenades, just like in the previous story. And uh, Shurikai, like, defends herself from this, but, like, Katori doesn't feel good about it, and she's trying to get Katsumasa to, like, hey, do I need to stop? These are not what we said they were, but she's getting no response. Uh, Eventually, all of the Order of Jukai are beat up. One of them yells something about the mech being an abomination. Uh, Katori is watching as one of the Veil Shapers kills the person, the, like, leader of this contingent, who was bonded with a kami. And then the Veil Shaper kills the kami. And the connection that Katori has with Shurikai sort of messes up, and Shurikai kills that Veil Shaper. And Katori understands that there is a kami in the mech. Uh, She sees a vision of it, and it's just this, like, kind of terrifying aspect of long black hair and like multiple eyes and faces. Um, Katori just delivers re- like relinquishes all control to the Kami and Shurikai kills all of the veil shapers. It kills the, the samurai who's there to help, you know, find the reckoners that weren't reckoners and things have gone too far. Uh, Katsumasa speaks through one of the veil shapers and says like, come on, Katori, come home. Don't, you know, freak out. We'll talk about this. <laughs> and Katori's like, no, we won't. Because uh, kills that veil shaper and it becomes clear like they can't go home. So Katori asks, she's like, what are we going to do now? And Shurikai finally, for the first time, answers and says, we'll make our own path. And uh, that's kind of where the story ends. With a assuredness that they are going to be going their own direction together now. Uh, which was not how I expected this story to go at all. But I really enjoyed that. I thought that the ending was great. I liked the connection between Shurikai and uh, Katori. I like that Katsumasa is absolutely evil. And this felt (laughs) like a real mech story. You know, like this felt like something out of Evangelion or um, like a a Gundam series. It was it was good. I liked it. Yeah, I think Katsumasa deserves it after I mean, she hops out of the mech the first time and it's like, hey, what the fuck was up with that? And he's like, it's great, isn't it? Let's not talk about it. You just drink. <laughs> and well, yeah. yeah, it's it's like with the, the view of the, the Kami in the mech is like tied up with all these knots to the, the, the technology that only Katsumasa can undo. And like, it's clear that this Kami wants to kill Katsumasa for what's happened. Yeah. And like, God, he is like evil. Yeah, it's also just, I love that when that happens in a story, when there's like, oh, there's some secret, and then a secret gets revealed, and they're like, no, wait, come back, I'll, we'll, we'll reason this out. And it's like, no, it's too fucking late. You did post me. You did let me pilot a ghost in the machine mech. And now I'm, now I'm going to uh, kill a whole bunch of people and peace the fuck out. Yeah, it was, uh, it's, it's, it's weird because it's like we know from the main story that like Akami can connect to technology because we have uh, Kaito's drone, you know, Pompon Chan um, slash Himoto. And we know that that's like possible, but this is clearly Akami that doesn't want to be connected yeah. to a mech. In prison. And yeah, and, and this Kami is being forced to bond with Katori. Like there is a bond that is between them that this Kami is not like consenting to in the same way that, you know, the, the Kami was consenting to bonding with the order of Jukai leader. So like clearly there's something very sinister here. Uh, so good for Katori and Shurikai. I hope that they go off and uh, eventually kill Katsumasa. Um, I want to see another story about them because like this does just end with the mech, the Kami mech and the pilot kind of going off on their own. And I'm like, what's going to happen? Like, how is like, this is the start of a story. This doesn't feel like the end of one. So it would be really cool if sometime in the future, 
we got like a follow-up. It'll never happen, but it would be really <laughs> cool. The number of side stories that we've had in the modern era where we're just like, we want more of this and we know we're not going to get it, but we still want more of it. Well, they keep giving us these stories that have endings that are like clearly setups to a future story. And I'm like, we're never going to get it. Yeah. Like, that's also just like kind of the perils of um, doing the side stories in the first place. Like there were even in the kind of founding era of magic online web fiction where like M15 had some story threads that essentially got set up but never fully delivered either because like by magic origins those story threads had been scrapped in favor of new things or just teams changed and nobody was going to pick that up where it had been left and so I'm hopeful that we have a stable story team going forward and um, they will have some fond memories of their past work and be able to follow up on it. But at the same time, just the nature of the game. So we'll see. And like, just like the, the Jacob Hawkins story from uh, Innistrad. Exactly the one I was thinking of. (laughs) Yeah. It kind of, it kind of ends with like, okay, well what happens next? Like what's going to happen? I still think that you should absolutely read the Epic Engine. I think Grace Chan did a great job. The story is cool. The action scenes are snappy. Uh, the characters are really fun. You get a lot of depth with only like a few like scenes with them. Um, like I, I felt as if like, you know, Katori felt very full to me uh, as a character. You can kind of get the sense of her like, you know, oh, my future as a pilot is really important to me. And she seems really dedicated to being a futurist, but she does have this like lingering problem with Katsumasa now. Um, and even when we got the the side bit with um, with her friend uh, Arima, they were like a cool character, and I want to know more about Arima. And they felt very like developed as like, hey, here's this outsider who's risen in the ranks in the futurists, and like Katsumasa doesn't like them, and it's like cool but we're probably never going to get another story about them. And I kind of hate that. Um, <laughs> Cause it's like, we're not going to go back to Kamigawa anytime soon. Uh, and even if we did, we'd probably want different side stories to like, you know, flesh out other characters. Uh, but this is just, you know, another call to like wizards, like, Hey, hire some of these authors to write another story and just like throw it on the website when we don't have anything else going on, you know, just, Right now, there was no story this week, for example. We we got all the story. So you could have thrown up one of like a, a follow-up story to the Jacob Hawkins story. Or you could have given us another story about Renan Seven from Sean and McGuire or something. It's just like there's there's such a push and a pull, because it's like we did get more than a dozen stories <laughs> for Kamigawa, but they were condensed so tightly. That it was, like, impossible to... Like, everybody kind of read the main storyline in sequence, and I won't Mm -hmm. divert us even further, but I'm sure at the um, end of our story discussion concerning Kamigawa Black as a whole, we can kind of wrap up and talk about how this one was executed in comparison. Yeah, and uh, I won't talk too much more, but just about this specific story, I know it takes a lot of work to, like work with an author and edit and you have to ask Jay to like go through and make sure everything's good for continuity. <laughs> uh, you can make Jay work harder. It's fine. Okay. It's okay. Um, but anyways, I would love a follow up. So uh, we do have one last story we want to talk about today. Um, this one I will, I will try and keep brief because we, we are trying to shove three stories into one episode uh, and analysis. So uh, this last story was The Foes Who Make Us by Abby May Otis. Uh, it is very good, but this one is uh, about the, the Yamazaki cousins. So the story starts off, um, this is probably something like 15, 16-ish years before the Emperor goes missing at the start of the story. It's kind of, it's not set in the modern day on Kamigawa. So that's like an important thing to lay out here. The timeline says uh, 10 minutes before the attack is like where the story begins, uh, which is approximately like 18-ish years before the story really takes off. But it's also like 
probably like 16 years before the the emperor goes missing. So anyways, uh, it starts off with these young cousins, Heiko and Norika, and they have snuck out of their home on the Imperial compound where they live and they're not allowed to go outside of like a certain range to go to this garden uh, and check out this like mysterious like rift that's been appearing and like swallowing birds and stuff. Uh, Heiko is the younger of the two. She's eight years old while Norika is 10 and they have like this secret like sign language that they communicate with each other. Uh, so like they will tap the back, the, the back of their heel with one foot to like say, you know, play along with me, things like that. And so they're like investigating this rift uh, and they get really close to it. And Heiko gets really close to it. And from the rift emerges this Kami, who uh, we actually, you know, is a card in the set, but I don't know if it's the exact same one, but it's a unforgiving one, which is like a sort of faceless person with a sword sticking through them. Uh, so Heiko gets really close to it. And then the Kami comes out and attacks her. But Norika jumps in the way and pushes Heiko out of the Kami's path. And when she does so, the spirit passes through her and she suffers what she describes as uh, as if the Kami has like gone between each of her cells. And she feels a hundred thousand paper cuts that will never heal. So then 10 years later, uh, Heiko is now 18 and she and Norika have never really reconciled what happened. Norika spent like nine months in a bed recovering it's been very hard on the family. Heiko at 18 leaves her family from Aiganjo and goes to Sokenzashi. And she gets there uh, and she's cold and she's hungry and she finds this line of people who are lined up for soup. And so she thinks that she has to like pay for this food and she's like looking for who to pay. And she like ends up inadvertently cutting in line. And this cook sees her and is like, hey, stop, don't cut in line. She's like, oh, well, I'm not in this line. I'm, I'm just looking for a place to buy food. And he's like, or the, the cook is like, uh, you don't have to do that. Just get in line. The uprisers take care of the people here. So it's like a you know free soup line. Cool. Um, and uh, while waiting in line, some imperial mechs show up and start to try to disperse them because feeding hungry people is illegal. Uh feels very relevant uh <laughs> and uh like a fight starts breaking out and Heiko ends up throwing a snowball at the mech and the cook who uh has like bonded with commies and they have like three floating like teapots around their head uh tells Heiko to run and so Heiko starts running and like avoiding imperials and these mechs and like finds their way to a restaurant because they're like super hungry and they go inside and who do they run into but the cook. <laughs> so uh, the cook is like, yeah, you run pretty fast. Uh, what are you doing here? And Heiko says that she's looking for Rizona. And the cook says, uh, and I love this line. Uh, the server laughs. Everybody wants to find Rizona. What makes you special? Heiko responds, nothing. I just, and the cook responds with, you don't think you're special? Which I just, <laughs> I, I loved that. I love that line. So shout out to the author. One of my favorite bits of writing um, really just turns things on its head. Uh, so Rizona just happens to be there. Heiko joins up with Rizona and uh, Rizona explains that, you know, every season the Imperials insist it will get better, but every season it falls to us to keep each other alive. Uh, Heiko becomes deeply involved in the uprisers. At the same time, Norika has been studying and becoming really influential within the imperial court uh she is like known as a poet and a philosopher and she's very smart and capable she studies and becomes a samurai but she's living with like chronic pain ever since that that encounter with the, the kami she uses like augments to keep herself from suffering constantly uh, and she becomes an aide to naomi who is like one of the advisors for the court and naomi says hey i'm gonna reassign you to sokenzachi so you can go deal with the, quote, bandits there. Uh, six months later, we cut back. So this has been now, how long? Uh, 12 and a half years yeah. after the initial attack. Um, we cut to Heiko, and she is uh, robbing a train that has just been sitting full of food and provisions with Chie, who is the cook. Uh, Chie is part of the Uprisers. 
and uh, they are robbing this train together. Chie uses the teapots to like melt the ice off the lock so they can get in. Uh, and they get inside, and it turns out it's a trap. And who else has trapped them but Norika? So this is the first time these cousins interact with each other for like 12 and a half years. Uh, Norika recognizes Heiko, uses some little sign language to say like, hey, chill out. We're, we're going to handle this. Uh, Chie and Heiko confess their love for each other in this really adorable moment where Chie is like, hey, you see her? I love her and I haven't told her yet. And if you do anything to her, I'll burn your face off. <laughs> um, uh, Norika lets Chie go and Norika and Heiko have like this conversation where Norika's like, hey, show me the city. I want to see the city from the point of view of an upriser. So they go on like a little tour of the city together. Uh, and of course, like the uprisers don't like that this Imperial is walking one of their own through the city. So Rizona stop steps in and like puts an axe to Norika's neck and is like, hey, get out of here. Uh, but it ends up turning into like a negotiation and... <laughs> Uh, Heiko kind of traps Norika into agreeing to like all these terms to like help the uprisers with like, you know, hey, we'll stop taxing you and we'll look away from the mech that you're using and we'll, you know, provide food and stuff. Uh, and so like it's a little like brokerage of peace and uh, Norika and Heiko end up walking back to the Imperial compound together and uh, they agree that they're no longer enemies but they aren't exactly allies yet. Um, there's a, a really interesting line where it says, uh, their secret language from childhood holds no gestures to name the distance between them. Uh, so it ends with like a pretty satisfying ending, but also like we know that sometime in the near future, Rizona is going to lead an assault on Iganjo. So clearly things don't actually get better. <laughs> um, but who knows? I mean, like, I thought it was a, a really, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very delightful sto story about these two cousins who end up opposed to each other, but also, like, share some sort of deep bond. Uh, both of them having suffered since that attack from the Kami, Norika living with this, you know, chronic pain, and Heiko living with this guilt that she believes she's responsible for it. Um, so, yeah. It doesn't explain why they don't have partner though is the thing uh yes it does because there's now this distance between them i mean <laughs> may maybe the next story when they actually become full-fledged allies um and maybe have to like bend the rules of the usurpers and the imperials for each other um maybe then they'll get cards with partner but yeah no i liked it yeah it's uh it's a good, it, the thing I liked about this story is it gave me a lot of what I wanted that we didn't get from the main story, which was a lot about the uprisers yes. and like the conditions outside of Iganjo. Uh, we get, we kind of only story. got them like mm -hmm. the, oh, it's time for the uprisers to attack you because uh, Jinjitaxia <laughs> signaled them to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, the main story doesn't shine a good light on the uprisers necessarily they kind of just seem like they're angry and we don't get a reason why yeah. uh in this story we really got to understand like oh like the people of Sokinzen mountain range are just kind of left to freeze and die and the imperials don't really do anything to help them so they take care of themselves and even like, then the imperials yeah. try to obstruct those efforts yeah, and so it um it felt very political, but also very personal by bringing it down to the level of like these two cousins. Uh, yeah, it's just um, I think it was probably my favorite of these side stories that we got, uh, just because I really really loved the sort of political nature of it and the fact that like we got to see a lot of the world that we did not get to see in the main story. Yes. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, like, even the Order of Jukai played a role in the main story. Even, you know, we got to see a little bit of Odawara um, in the main story, but we didn't really get any Sokens on. So now we do. And I like that. Uh, we are, like, running kind of late, but I do want to get some, like, final thoughts on the on the nature of these side stories and the story in general now that we've covered everything for Kamigawa. So what are you what are you thinking? I think I prefer the five on five split. I know, I know that 
this was kind of an exceptional main story and um, they did the Kaido introduction basically from the start and that was unofficially part of the main story and the main story kicked off and then we had um, both sagas and the side stories but I don't know I just appreciate like if this was the new normal and they made it apparent that it was a new normal I just love kind of having a routine to be able to absorb the main story and the side stories um, alongside each other and yeah like I understand the exception that needed to be made especially for the Jin and Tamio reveals but at the same time um, I hope they revert to 5 and 5 in the future because that seemed to work well and this was in sheer word count more story that we basically got for um, any of the sets since Syndicar Rising introduced the 5 on 5 structure. But at the same time, it's just a little bit difficult to keep up with the way they were released. Your thoughts? I I don't hate having the full main story before the set release. Like, I, I think that was like, while it was a lot to read in a short period of time to like stay on pace with the, the rollout. I think it was kind of cool to like be able to read the story without having it be spoiled by all the cards. My, my only thing I didn't like is the fact that we got all three of these uh, side stories one after another. So like one came out on Monday, one came out on Tuesday, one came out on Wednesday. And uh, it was just a lot really short back to back. And I would have preferred getting them one week at a time. Like I, I know that we're getting a lot of content for Kamigawa and we a sort lot. of talked about this <laughs> elsewhere. People are talking about this, like, holy crap, wizards went out of their way and like gave us everything. I mean, like we're not even going to touch the visual novel or the soundtrack <laughs> like or, or the, the anime trailer. If <laughs> we got two trailers and one of them was just like anime, like it was, I mean, like, I love all of it. I think it's all really cool. But also when it comes to, like, the story delivery, I hate that we didn't get any, like, article or, like, short story to read this week because I miss that. I miss having, like, a story a week for a while. Um, I don't know when the next one's going to start because, like, the next set to come out is Streets of New Capenna, and that could be months away. So, But like, is there, we, like, yeah. but is there a... I'm trying to think of the exact way to word this. Is there a balance to be struck between having burst of story and having story every week for the entire 52 weeks of the year? It is. I I feel like the five and five structure gave it stretched out. And mm -hmm. that has its strengths in that you get multiple weeks of sustained interest in the story. But at the same time, we saw how much more interest there was in the story having it released in such a condensed fashion that it happened with Kamigawa. Um, that was also because there was kind of a pivotal story reveal in there, but it's just... Is, is story a continuing product? Is it something that needs to be every single week? Um, it used to be practically every single week, and people would complain to wizards when we ran out of story, and then we'd have like side sets like conspiracy or conspiracy two or the commander sets that would get like sometimes stories but it was never as continuous as people kind of understood it to be it was just more drawn out from a single set and that draws into the ever-present issue of like the focus of magic shifts so rapidly to the point where they're like promoting new secret lair drops pretty frequently and then there's sets and then there's supplemental sets and then there's other things other products that exist that aren't either of those and i just think the scattershot focus like if magic story is going to be its own product and its own continuing product that you want to have sustained throughout the year great but that needs to be committed to and that also needs to be committed to in like levels of promotion and awareness of the story um at a greater scale 
than we've seen up to this point. And I know it's kind of silly to be like, you need to promote story more if you want it to be a continuing product. But the truth is like, we're still in an uphill battle recovering from pretty much everything that happened with the uh, previous story regime. So if it wants to be taken seriously, cool. If it wants to um, continue to kind of be a sporadic product associated with only really standard set stories and then have like legends articles for stuff like Modern Horizons, cool. Like I just kind of want a direction for it because it like we all want different things. But if we kind of got a united um, mission statement for what story is supposed to be, that would probably ease some nerves for uh, people who want it to be something else. And that includes me, because we kind of <laughs> get into these moods where we want things to be either compressed or drawn out, etc. Yeah, I, uh, I think that having... I think we have a lot of story releases, even if it's not necessarily the short stories that are on the website. Like, having the manga release is a story release. Having even the trailers you could count as being story releases. Like these are all part of the story being told. Um, I think that what we tend to focus on and what I think is really what is like the, the strong part of the Vorthos community, like the people who are dedicated to story is the short stories that we get on the website. Uh, because those are like, they're not marketing tools. You're not selling me anything. When I read the story of uh, Shashiro or, you know, the story of Katori. Like, you're kind of selling me the commander deck, but not really. Yeah. There's no active <laughs> marketing here. It's like, these are stories that are, you know, requested and are part of it, but they're not like a marketing item. And I think that that's what makes them sort of the core of the Vorthos community and why we're so focused on them a lot of the times. Uh, and for that reason, I like the main story coming out before the set. I like being able to read a story and learn about the characters and not have the set spoil it. Uh, even when it's not like a big reveal, like the the Tamiyo reveal was, I think that's a huge plus. I think that's something they should keep. I think that if they're going to keep offering us these like five side stories, they need to do it over a longer span of time. Uh, I think that they should do more of them. <laughs> I think that is one of the, the strengths of Magic is that they can release these stories because like, the story of the Yamazaki cousins has nothing to do with the main story of Neon Dynasty, except like being tangentially like close to it in some ways. Uh, but also like they could release that story at any time. Like it doesn't have to be in that week where they're releasing two other stories. And, and also like we get a bonus from these stories in that they can release them and not have them relate directly to cards that are coming out. Like we could have a story just like next week pop up about Tyvar Kell off on a mission doing something. So it's like, it's like a big bonus that we can get as like Vorthos community to have these stories come out regularly. And I think we would be better served by having them come out once a week instead of coming out three over the course of three days. So that's just my, my thought about it. Uh, also, because like it feels kind of empty having a week without a short story, and the set is just now coming out. Like the set's not even fully released, and we didn't get a story this week. So it kind of you know I would like it spaced out a little more. Yeah, that is a very strange spot to be in. Um, and I don't like. It's kind of weird having the product come out and be like, "Well, there's this plethora of story." Um, you're not getting any more of it, but there's a whole bunch of story <laughs> ready to be read. Uh, yeah, can't really. Again, I'm just like kind of lost on. Um, I know this was a one-off um, way to release the story, but I do want to kind of pick the brains of um, what exactly the approach is going forward. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I really hope that with Streets of New Capenna, it would be really cool if we got all of the main story, whatever they're calling the main story, before the cards were released or like revealed. Like, yeah. Then we would keep getting a weekly side story for like five weeks, you know, and then that way we can we can still have a story coming out pretty regularly 
but not have to like read eight, you know, eight to 10 stories over the course of like a week. Yeah. And maybe that should be the role of side stories is just to sustain until the next main set comes out. And then Mm -hmm. those side stories can kind of keep going until just keep chaining them forever. Because honestly, like, we know that the side stories aren't going to be necessarily followed up on. Um, but there's a lot of material there. There's a lot of... Lord knows they print enough legendary creatures that um, it's kind of difficult to probably even tackle them all, even if you did, like, two characters per story per week until the next set came out. Like, you might not even <laughs> address all of them in that case. So... Uh, and that's yeah. not even to speak on things that are unrelated to standards that's which could be dipped into, which I still hope that they do. But uh, maybe what we're talking about is the Boom Magic comics. Maybe we would, <laughs> <laughs> maybe we need those to go weekly. And uh, yeah, go read the Boom Magic comics because those are at least monthly. So that's some one week a month you get a new story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I have many good things to say about Boom, despite only being on the main story podcast. So, <laughs> well, uh, if uh, do you have do you have any final thoughts that you want to share other than uh, read the Boom Magic comics? I have final thoughts, and those thoughts okay. are in my continuing trend of being entirely flipped on my opinion of things. I love paper books. Goddamn, like. I like reading physical books so much more than I like reading ebooks and about infinitely more than I like reading articles. Um, and I know that's a very difficult opinion to have considering how most of magic's publishing history has been, but, uh, you know, I want physical books. You just got to print out uh, all of the magic story and I've, read it on, on paper. I've seen people do that, and I'm like, that's that's a level of dedication. And obviously, you couldn't like publish it and bind it in the book or get that ordered specifically. But it's just, I don't know, it's infinitely more easy for me to read on a page than it is on a screen at this point in my life. And uh, I don't know. Yeah. It's tough for me to read Children of the Nameless since it only ever came out as a PDF, uh, I think. Oh, no, you just need to learn German, and then you can get a, a printed and bound <laughs> copy. Two and a half years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I haven't. I, I kind of stopped making my push for them to, to put Children of the Nameless on the website after Christmas, because I was really hoping they would do it for Christmas, but... Yeah, it's it's February. We're halfway through February now. You need to you need to print put Children of the Nameless back on the website for all of you uh, magic people who are listening. I genuinely do hope that the Netflix associated novel, I think by Django Wexler, Mm -hmm. will be good. (laughs) (laughs) That is the highest bar that a magic novel can reach at this point. Um I know people praise Arena. I know people praise the Brothers War for being great. They were good. They were good because they were magic novels. Um, I just want to see something like genuinely that I enjoy reading that I can physically hold. And maybe I'm cursing um, (laughs) the entire magic storyline by wishing for more physical printed novels even if they're just stories that are already available online i want that i want to let you somewhere the monkey's paw yeah. is curling a finger and somewhere in an email inbox to greg weissman is a thing saying <laughs> hey are you interested in writing another novel for magic <laughs> and he says no, no i've got um my dc tv show to write instead <laughs> well uh my my only final thought is uh i made some miso soup for dinner it was really good made it from scratch it was nice that's wonderful. If you want to make yeah. miso soup too, you can go to patreon.com <laughs> slash Lavorthoscast. Lorelai isn't here. Uh, <laughs> Zcant tried me for having such a shit segue to our Patreon. But for $1 a month, you can join the Patreon Discord. And for 
three dollars a month question mark correct yeah it's it's three dollars now it was five dollars back in my day we deflated it yeah three dollars a month you can listen to us live on thursday nights as we uh, ramble about story and record this podcast but until next time this has been the vorthos cast